Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Sokolo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yangna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabrieleño Tongva and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Sarah Suarez, and I'm the Senior Manager of Programs and Operations at Sokolo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Sokolo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and we present conversations like this one. You can find us at SokoloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and on YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. We were founded in 2003, and we are now celebrating our 20th year. We are honored to co-present tonight's program with Arts for LA, the ASU Narrative and Emerging Media Program, and LACMA. And I'm pleased to introduce our moderator for tonight, Anuradha Vikram, Anuradha Vikram is a writer, curator, and educator in Los Angeles. They are co-curator of the 2024 Portland Biennial and guest curator of the Getty PST Art Exhibition, Atmosphere of Sound, Sonic Art in Times of Climate Disruption, 2024-2025, for UCLA ArtSci Center. Vikram's book, Decolonizing Culture, helped initiate a global movement to decolonize arts institutions and monuments. Their latest book is Use Me at Your Own Risk, Visions from the Darkest Timeline, using speculative fiction to address current and future social conditions from a technocritical point of view. Please welcome our panelists and our moderator, Anuradha Vikram. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. I'm Anuradha Vikram. It's an honor to moderate this conversation, and I'm pleased to introduce our guests tonight. Uh, immediately here to my left, Joel Ferry is the program director of LACMA's Art and Technology Lab. Inspired by the spirit of LACMA's original art and technology program, 1967-71, which paired artists with technology companies in Southern California, the Art and Technology Lab supports artist experiments with emerging technology. Through its sponsors, the lab provides grants, in-kind support, and facilities at the museum to develop new artist projects. To date, over 40 artists from around the world, including Ghana, Hungary, Ireland, Korea, Mexico, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Switzerland, have received awards through the Art and Technology Lab. Nicole Hendricks is a four-time Emmy-winning and five-time ProMax Gold-winning producer and creative director with over 15 years of experience in television, games, live events, and film. In addition to working as a producer and marketing consultant, she is an impassioned advocate for artists. As the co-founder of the Concept Art Association, she, an organization focused on elevating and raising the profile of concept artists within the entertainment industry. She also serves as the co-founder and executive director of the Brick Foundation, an organization that focuses on increasing representation for women and people from underrepresented groups in entertainment, gaming, media, and tech. An LA native, 
Writer and filmmaker John Lopez got his start as an assistant to feature film producers before going on to cover entertainment and the arts for Grantland, Vanity Fair, and the Los Angeles Times, among others. An alum of the Sundance Institute Labs, John has subsequently written and produced for such shows as Paramount Plus's Strange Angel, Netflix's Seven Seconds, and Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth. Sarah Rosalina Wisharika is an assistant professor of computational craft and haptic media at UC Santa Barbara. She creates boundless forms that fuse ancient handicraft traditions with emerging technologies in textile, beadwork, and clay. Throughout her career, she has made a reputation for her hybrid objects of digital and analog processes that suggest new possibilities as we define our relationships to technology and innovation. She is a recipient of the Creative Capital Award, the LACMA Art and Tech Lab Grant, the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Art Prize, and the Artadia Award. Recent solo exhibitions include the Columbus Museum of Art, Museum of Contemporary Art Santa Barbara, Clock Shop, and Blum and Poe Gallery. Thank you all for joining me tonight. Before starting, I'd like to remind our audience that we will be taking questions toward the end of the program. If you're watching online, you can submit questions to the live chat on YouTube. With that, let's get started. Okay, so our first speaker is going to be John Lopez. Oh, great. <laughs> um, well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, is there a question? Is there a prompt or should I just riff? Um, I think, you know, tell us a little bit about why you're here. Yes, okay, um, so uh, I, the WJ recently was on strike. We resolved our strike, thankfully. We've got wonderful protections in our deal. Um, the road to get there, though, involved a group of us who were science fiction writers and writers who liked science meeting and studying AI. When ChatGPT launched in November of 2022, it feels like an eternity ago now, um, very quickly the Guild had already had a task force looking at AI's effects in the industry, and I, for random reasons, happen to know a lot of people in AI. I'm very science-minded. I love math. I'm very respectful and amazed at what you know is done with this stuff. Um, and I contacted the guild and I said, I want to help. This group was going on. I became a part of it. And we all basically met and we talked about what this was, what it meant, where it came from, and most importantly, what we needed to ask for from the studios to make sure that there were meaningful regulations. because it became very painfully apparent to us that the way AI was being deployed in the world at large was not being thought out, was not being, you know, the artistic point of view was not being taken into consideration. And if we didn't attack this now in our deal, we weren't going to have a chance to make up this ground. We knew that this was something that was going to be a part of the world going forward. And we also were very acutely aware that we were the first labor action, or you know, the first labor negotiation that was really happening in the age of AI. So no one was gonna put rules and boundaries around this stuff if we didn't speak up. And we in the group were firm believers in this. We spoke to our board, we explained to them the state of the technology, the state of the industry, and frankly, what it meant for writers and artists all across the world. And we said, we need to address this now. And fortunately, they listened and they realized that this is a very important issue. They made it part of the negotiating, and I'll be honest, it was a really hard part of the negotiating. Um, I was not in the room, I'm not a board member, I'm just a writer who loves this stuff, but from what I've heard, from what I've read, from what I know, this became the hill that a lot of the studio negotiators were dying on, and this was, it was a fight, because this technology does change things in a very significant way. Um, 
And I think we got as much as we could possibly have gotten, given how long and how hard that strike was and how much it affected the LA area and the entire industry. We held on as long, as hard as we could, and we got what we felt we needed to have a fighting chance to make sure that AI as deployed in the world will never fundamentally or hopefully will not harm the humanistic mission of art and entertainment and all the stuff we do, which in my personal opinion is to facilitate communication. Whether you're writing a poem, you're making a painting, you're writing a really dorky screenplay about talking dogs, uh, you're putting something of yourself out into the world. You're communicating to another human being. And I think the forces of capital and industry are very quick to forget that. And, you know, the, the WGA, part of our mission is to protect our members, but I think also we're aware that, you know, we're screenwriters. We're not, you know, we're not like, we're not big fancy artists. We're not Pablo Picasso. We're just guys trying to make everyone laugh or smile, but being a human being is part of that, and we think that's kind of part of our mission. Great, thank you. So I think what I'm going to do is just ask each of you in turn to talk a little bit about what you're doing here, and then I'm going to ask you more specific questions, because we have so much that we want to cover. So Nicole, will you tell us a little bit about what's your connection to AI? Yes. Um, so I'm the co-founder of Concept Art Association. We focus on um, just really elevating and empowering artists working in entertainment. And we were thrust into this by our board member, Carla Ortiz, um, August of 2022. Um, she, like, I had been kind of tracking it, and she was like, you really need to take a look. It's taken a jump. Um, and that's when you could start, some of the sites were coming up where you could see what images were in there. And I saw my husband is an artist. His portfolio is in there. Obviously, Carla's work, many of the people that we know and care about, lots of our members are a member-based organization. And just the thought that their work was scraped without their consent, credit, or compensation, and that's the foundation that a lot of these models are built upon, um, just didn't sit well with us. So we had a couple of early town halls. Um, the US Copyright Office was actually there to speak as well. Um, and then we launched a GoFundMe December of last year. Over 5,000 people have contributed to that GoFundMe campaign. Um, we raised money to pay for a lobbyist to lobby on behalf of individual creators in Washington, D.C. We just got back two weeks ago from our second event out on the Hill. Um, and it's been it's very heartening because we went in May. And in May, it was the same time that Sam Altman was there testifying. Um, and he... So people were starting to really talk about this, like how is this going to impact jobs? How is this going to impact our creative economy and what we're doing? Um, and I think that what was very heartening this time is people are more like, what can we do to help? What legislature should we be looking at? And so it's definitely moving very fast, which is amazing. Um, obviously, I wish it would move faster. Um, but that is where we're at, is, is there really is no way forward for us with AI without artists and digital creators being taken care of. Great. Thank you. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about how you've been using AI in your artwork? Yeah, so I've been working with digital arts for the past 20 years, and my first time to use AI was around 2016, 2017. Um, it was just becoming just accessible enough to the public, uh, predominantly on Google's platform. Um, and even at that point, I, I was quite alarmed by how much um, wasn't transparent and uh, 
you know, knowing, you know, how these systems operate and, you know, when doing so really uh, brought a lot of concern over the material and how extractive these technologies will be. Um, so something as someone who, you know, works with software, work with code, um, a lot of it um, ends up being a something that's in the material world, a material product. And, you know, I think AI really pushed me to a point where I wanted to push away from the screen and try to anchor it to kind of reveal of kind of what's hidden underneath. Because um, it is, there's so many people who are marginalized by AI, not only by access, but um, what it's actually representing. Um, and that's something that I saw was very clearly at that point um, while working with AI. And it's something that I'm very curious by as an artist. Um, and, and I'm really here to kind of talk about um, how artists can also be critical. Um, and I think that's gonna be one of the most important things that we're gonna do. And uh, again, like uh, really admired um, the writer's strike and you know, fully support um, people who, you know, truly understand the impact and how this will um, can easily take over in a very awful way um, in the future if we don't speak out. So um, that's why I'm here. Thank you. And Joel, from the perspective of a curator as well as someone who works in our county museum, can you tell us how AI is impacting your work and the artists that you work with? Certainly. Um, so first and foremost, um, it affects just the way that I work with artists. Um, I run a artist grant program. <clears throat> we support um, artist projects that engage some form of emerging technology or critique some form of, tech, of emerging technology. Um, and uh, of course, right now, there's a lot of questions about AI. Um, and so what we have been trying to do is just nurture these projects. Um, and not just nurture, but also learn from them. So what are the lessons that are coming out of these artistic experiments? Artists are probably the best people, I feel like, to engage with emerging technologies because they can be critical. They're not necessarily the creator of these tools, but they're willing to roll up their shirt sleeves and get their hands on them and, and again, just be critical. And that is really helpful for us in our position as a county museum um, in terms of how we choose to use new technologies going forward into the future um, in our galleries, um, on our, with our digital properties, what have you. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about art. Um, and I'm gonna start with you, John. Why right. is human-made art better than AI-made art? Um, I mean, I don't know that it's better, it's just, what's the point of art, <laughs> right? <laughs> we're, you know, in my opinion, we're communicating like the crazy, weird, fantastical reality of what it means to be a human. And I think currently we're living in a world where connecting with other individuals is very hard. So I look at art, whether it's Howard's End by E.M. Forrester or a blog post about like, you know, a random thing that happened to you today as an important avenue of communication and expression. And the thing with AI is, as it is currently being rolled out, it is not about human expression. It's about amalgamating a whole bunch of content, content, I don't even like that word, um, amalgamating a whole bunch of people's prior expressions and putting it through kind of like a, a data blender. And while there might be ways in which that could be useful to artists, the way it is being, and, and I personally have yet to find ChatGPT or Bard or Claude particularly helpful in writing a script. Um, so I don't even want to 
say that necessarily, but there are ways that data science techniques can be useful. Math is incredible. I love math. I love all this kind of stuff. The way it's being rolled out into our world is, I think, very disrespectful of humans, and it's not putting humans at the center of the technology. This is not being treated as something that augments or gives us new abilities. It's being treated as a way to kind of extract profit from people who already have done work. You know, The way large language models were made, the way stable diffusion is made, it took everything on the internet and used it as fuel to create these things that are being monetized by for-profit entities. So it also is having a deleterious effect on writers and artists, you know, if people didn't see, Sports Illustrated just got in trouble because it was publishing AI-generated articles with fake people. You know, this stuff came out fast and quick, and no one has a sense or an intuition of what it is or how we need to treat it, but we need to treat it very carefully because I think we already have a lot of things in this world pushing against human connection. And I think we see how that is collapsing our democracy. And the truth is we've been dealing with AI in the form of social media algorithms and Google searches in ways that were not apparent until now. So I think more, now more than ever, it's not that art is better, it's that it's necessary. Do you wanna add something, Nicole? Yeah, um, the Cosmopolitan cover that was AI generated, right? You had one person on a computer, you know, hundreds of hours on a computer, but one person. What that replaced was a model whose modeling is their art, the photographer that that is their art, the hair and makeup artist, the person that pulled the fashion, the wardrobe that they wore, all of these artists and true art and collaboration nature like is replaced by one AI image. So I think it's, it's more just, it's a very two-dimensional flat version of what art is when art has so much depth and humanity and soul. Yeah. So Sarah, how can we use AI as artists in a way that would be not retaining all the negatives that we've just heard, what are the ethical protocols and the responsibilities for artists who are using AI creatively? Yeah, and I think, you know, even the things that you said, like the Cosmopolitan cover, you know, coming from an artist's perspective, it is interesting, um, you know, whose imagination is it? If it, because this is based off, you know, images off the internet, um, it becomes this kind of, you know, universal average. Um, to an artist, that's kind of interesting, because um, we are, you know, someone who studies images, studying how the world sees things, but also you have to be critical of it. Um, especially the people who are marginalized from that vision who, and how much this is going to push them even further away. Like how, how do these AI generated people look like? Um, so that's, you know, for as an artist, we can make work that describes that or makes the viewer aware of that. Um, also the histories, you know, because, you know, not only is it being trained on images of the internet, these are images of the past. Um, I always, you know, love this idea of, you know, AI also being this kind of like history engine because, you know, it selects things that it was trained to see. Um, and, you know, as an artist, there can be interesting ways to use that in juxtaposition to talk about these conditions, um, describe the things that are unseen, and also just the aesthetics of AI, like the hyper-realism, like that is very interesting. These are like this palette, you know, of the social media, you know, world now that we're living in, um, or the palette of, you know, being in the pandemic. Uh, and these are all things that cart artists always will react to whenever there's a new tool that's on the market. But this is a very different type of tool. It's not like Photoshop, even though now, who knows, it might, I think it's already in Photoshop. <laughs> uh, and so again, uh, 
artists really need to be aware and be extra critical of images. We're bombarded with images so much. Um, you know, how do we slow down and actually critically think about what we're seeing and not just accepting it? That is going to be the biggest crutch. And also, us being artists, you know, we are the bearers of humanity. Um, this is a hu humanity crisis of, you know, what we're being seen and do we care about it? We see the strike happening. Do artists care about that? And I just, again, want to encourage other artists to think about that. Like, how will it also impact us in 10 years? So how is this impacting art history, Joel? Great question. Um, in a nutshell, I think we as an institution have to be concerned about how, how we can do right, not just to the artists that we are engaging with today, but all of the artists that are in our collection, all of the artworks, um, our collection data. Uh, what are the implications for that? A lot of museums have collections website, uh, websites where you can basically uh, a search engine where you can enter a term, a search term, and it will pull up um, different works based on media, date, uh, different categories, what have you. Um, I've already, you know, I've worked with artists who have scraped these databases, not for pub not for anything as more experimental purposes, but the fact that artists are able to do this, it's you can kind of assume that if artists can get their hands on this, the big tech companies can as well. Um, and so there's a question of how much of our collection is in these training sets? Um, do we want to be included in these training sets? Um, all of the content about our collection that we have online, um, how is that being processed and shared, um, distributed, cut up? I think the blender analogy was really great um, because if, if you're, you know, our curators at the, the museum, they, their scholarship is at stake here. Um, and as these tools become more commonplace, they become more accepted, are we gonna lose our criticality? Um, the, the role of a curator becomes even more important to sort of fight this battle against misinformation. The same way I think a librarian um, is gonna have a pretty big fight ahead of them um, because you are fighting for the sake of art history, for the sake of information itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing we need to think about too is that the archive that we're generating as technological beings is so massive that we will need some form of AI to understand ourselves from an archival perspective in the future. So there's, it's going to be difficult for us to even parse the society that we have without AI. And that's part of, I think, what makes people really anxious. So the next question that I have, I just wanted to bring it back to Nicole, is why should we be concerned from a safety perspective about the push toward automation and artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think, again, I just want to go back to the data sets, right? So with Lion 5B, which is one of the predominant data sets that a lot of these models like MidJourney are using, um, that's 5B, 5 billion images. So that's people's artwork, that's copyrighted images from studios, that's your family photos, that's your, you know, 
very inappropriate things have been ended up into this data set. And that is the foundation for things that are being generated, right? And so I think what's the most upsetting about all of this is the job replacement. I've been tracking job loss in the creative sector since January on the Concept Art Association's website. Um, you can see testimonials we've been gathering. You're seeing you know, gaming studios in Texas letting go of art departments, just having an artist do cleanup. Um, you're seeing percentage of small business loss where it used to be that you were designing um, things and now an ad agency comes in with mid-journey images instead, right? So it's like you're not losing your whole business, but you're losing a portion. Same with concept art studios where you have um, independent producers would come for pitch work. Now they're coming, their pitch decks are now filled with images that they were able to generate, right? So it is one of those things where I think that job loss is here and it's just going to continue to grow. And it's more from a safety concern of what protections can we get in place to really protect the creatives that are working all across the world, specifically in the US, and what does that look like? And, and are we, like, how quickly can we move to protect what we have? Can I comment on that? Yeah, I think something that we should think about as, again, a lot of the problems around this are the structures and how this is being rolled out and the effect it's having on young artists. I think something we need to think about is how do you survive as an artist? We live in a very weird and wonderful world here in America where partially thanks to our copyright regime, you can make a living as an artist. You know, in Hollywood, we, you know, we're, if we're lucky, we get paid for a screenplay and we get paid enough to live, but then we're artists, so we're constantly doing stuff. And that kind of like, we then have free time to do other cooler, crazier things. Like there's a lot of money that kind of waterfalls through the system of Hollywood that supports a lot of experimental and weird art that's pushing the boundaries. But when you kind of turn off that faucet, it just makes it harder for artists to live and survive. And young artists especially, like I think in like, I, I came from a journalistic background and I just think back to when I started, I got my start learning to write $200, by the way, which was exorbitant at the time, $200 blog posts about random stuff. And I learned so much as an artist doing that. And you know, if we live in a world where Sports Illustrated is gonna have AI-generated fake authors do this, what about like the young 20-somethings who are coming up trying to learn their craft, trying to learn how to write, trying to like push the boundaries of new? Because again, AI is incredible. It's not going away. It's part of the world. There are things that can be done with it. We're exploring that. But it was introduced in a way where this conversation wasn't had and no one's thinking about the future, especially the future of young artists and how they're going to climb the ladder. I think AI, again, in its current iteration, privileges people who are already there, you know? But it also takes your portfolio and makes you compete against your own portfolio for a job. And I think that that's the most insulting component to all of this, right? Um, so if you could opt out, I think that that would be, I don't, there's like always Twitter polls going around of, right, of like, how many people would opt in? And it's like, and it, yeah. That's so interesting what you just said, because actually in the gallery world for visual artists, you're always competing against your own material. You know, artists um, who are very established will often find that collectors want to buy their old work because that's what they're familiar with. And you're out there trying to monetize your current work and artists don't get resale. So the only way you can really monetize the value that's now ascribed to your older work is by selling new work at that same rate, and it actually does put you in a certain sense in competition with yourself. Um, so I just thought it would be Can worth I just pointing that right out. Back yeah. So Steven Zapata, who's an amazing artist out of New York, has a great point that's like, 
they're doing the in the style of your name, right? And a lot of artists, it is a gig-to-gig -gig situation. You need to put your stuff on the internet so a recruiter can passively recruit you in the future. And if now your SEO is being polluted with images with tied to your name, but they're not subject matter that you wouldn't use. It's not to the level that you would have crafted. So it's, it's you're competing against fakes of yourself on top of that. So then the next question becomes, and this is a question that I've seen coming up in the chat as well, is, well, what about, you know, John, you were describing how, you know, you get your studio job and then in your spare time you make your creative project. A lot of people would argue that these new AI tools make it easier for you to make a better project in your spare time. And I think some people are also arguing maybe, you know, putting your work up and having someone find you for a gig isn't the future of the creative economy. So what, what do you say to that? And I think um, I'd love to hear from all four of you about this. How, what are the opportunities for artists with these technologies and how can artists protect themselves given what we're hearing? Well, th I think the fundamental problem in protecting ourselves is we don't know what's in the data training sets. There's no transparency around it. OpenAI won't release what it trained LLMs on. They won't release books three. So it's really hard to know how to protect yourself without that. And right now, the EU AI Act, which had that in it, is, I think, from my understanding, a little bit being defanged because kind of the industrial or the homegrown AI industry in France and Britain and Germany have been lobbying to change that. Like, I just don't understand how we can have this conversation without first knowing transparently what this stuff was made of. Um, there might be opportunities. There might be ways to do this. But until we, until we get this fundamental first hurdle of like protecting artists, it's really hard to see that. You know, again, as this stuff gets better, it is, you know, the other, this is my side point, sorry to, to drift, but don't anthropomorphize it. It is data science. It is machine learning. It is not a person. It doesn't have a point of view. You have a point of view, right? That's the number one thing you should remember about all of this stuff. So we need to know, Anyway, sorry, I got I got lost I got lost on a tangent. I it was, I was there for it. I was like right on the edge of it. This is this is what it means to be a writer to struggle and to like fall and to fail. But again, that's part of the process for me is like the struggling and the failing. Yeah, I've had AI experts tell me, oh, we solved the blank page problem for you, and I'm like, the blank page isn't the problem. It is the fundamental necessity of what we do as writers is to wrestle with that blank page. And you know, I just want to make sure that people can still do that. Sarah, thoughts? <laughs> There's a lot of interesting opportunities for artists to think critically about the systems and how the systems operate. And I love, you know, you brought up, you know, this idea of the archive, you know, this, like a, a machine that can, you know, name, uh, classify, and see and understand the world in itself is kind of interesting, like an engine. Um, so that in itself, I think, you know, artists can really start to you know, make new work that kind of explores like how networks function or listen to concepts that are not human or, you know, think things beyond of what they might not see in their worldview. But again, that requires a, a skilled eye and also requires you to also think a lot about history and these places that are coming. And something I consistently, you know, teach about my students is like, for example, um, the world's first computer, the ENIAC, that was built in World War II. Um, you know, these systems were made um, for warfare. Um, and just like, you know, we are seeing, you know, these AI systems that are hosted on these giant Microsoft servers also being now implemented in Gaza right now. Like, this is a very unique time where we're in this juxtaposition of seeing so many 
uh, applications um, happening at this time. And again, like artists are really important for, you know, revealing what's happening at, you know, a certain moment in time. And, you know, watching, you know, the rise of ChatGBT was one of the fastest used applications in the history ever. Um, and that is kind of frightening because artists are always the one in the forefront of critical thinking. Um, we need to be critical. Like, why are we using this application so quickly um, and not asking more questions or seeing how it will affect us in the future? And this, I think, you know, artists really pay a large part in making work that describes that, makes work about that. Um, even to like the point of like the blurring of, you know, artificial and reality, like that in itself is really interesting and in how it influences one another. But again, uh, artists need to be more critical. I think from a practical perspective, I'm very curious. I don't know yet. I haven't seen in proof of it, of its effectiveness, but I am curious about watermarking. And at least for artists going forward, if watermarking um, is a some kind of solution or maybe a first step in thinking about how to protect your own images right now. Um, because I think it is safe to assume that whatever you are publishing out there could potentially is is fair game. Um, just because that's the way it is right now, it's it's you know, um, you know, do not take it now and then ask for forgiveness later, um, as as you mentioned earlier. And I'm also wondering if there's other sort of technologies that we've been rummaging around with in the past few years that could also play into this in terms of, you know, I don't, want, I don't even want to say the word because it's like so cliche, but NFTs were designed to create scarcity. And right now we have the problem with, with AI, you have images that are just being sort of incorporated and being you know churned out, um, uh, uh, analyzed and, and reformatted and churned out, and I'm wondering if there is some use of blockchain technology to for artists to protect their own uh, 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 assets. Um, as again, this is very like you know blue sky thinking, but some form of registry or something. I've seen interesting applications for a blockchain. Um, to document war crimes, for example. Mm. And so what if artists could use this technology to document their artwork so that when there are very similar images of their work that appear in Sports Illustrator or whatever, um, there's a record that you can point to. Yeah, it's funny. I've talked to a bunch of writers about this, and there are, you know, in, in the inevitable world in which AI spreads, because it, it does feel like it's hard to kind of like totally stop something and not saying you can totally stop technology but like again it's the structure it's how the how the monetization and the capitaliz the capitalization of the material is used to make sure it goes back to the original creators of the underlying art and i've heard some writers wonder if there's a way to combine blockchain and mechanistic interpretability if and people don't know what mechanistic interpretability is you should study up on it Basically, the way AI works is essentially a, a black box. We don't really understand why the input leads to a specific output because it is so unfathomably complex. The training weights are these gigantic galaxy-sized matrices of numbers that encode the training data in them. 
And so there's work within the AI labs to kind of figure out like what is happening when you input your prompt and you get an image, like what is it drawing from? Like what part of its training data is it assembling this out of? And I've heard people say, I wonder if you could do something where if you could get mechanistic interpretability to the point where you could find like where, like you know, when you produce a piece of art with AI, you're writing on the back of other artists, right? You're using their work, and traditionally in copyright, you pay someone for that, or you negotiate with that, or you ask permission. Um, and so some have wondered, could you combine blockchain to create automatic contracts that then plug into some kind of mechanistic interpretability, look at the AI data training set, so that way, for every dollar that OpenAI is making, 95% of it isn't going back to Andreessen Horowitz, 95% of it is going to the artists who made the underlying data set so that they can survive and continue to do their art. This is a totally blue sky thinking, so I'm just flying yeah, with but you This is exactly what artists wanted to do with NFTs in the visual art space, and what a lot of people found out the hard way is that an NFT is not actually a legally enforceable contract. So the only way you can actually do that is if, in addition to your NFT, you actually have a legally binding contract that was written up under contemporary legal terms as a document that you can actually bring into court yeah. because nothing you do on NFTs really can be enforced. And so this is a setup for the next question in the sense that, um, and I will let you respond, you. but yeah. I, want, I want to just set up the next yeah, question yeah, yeah. and I think it'll be okay to respond to that too. Um, so the issue here is that whatever we set up in the online space, if it's not backed up by our real world laws and protocols and regulations, people can do whatever they want. And so we already have copyright law, but we've established that in this database, data set creation space, a lot of people are abusing the idea of a nonprofit. They're abusing the idea of fair use in taking copyrighted material without permission and then essentially saying, we'll sort it out in the courts later on, which buys them time to make a bunch of money before they get shut down. So what I want to ask you all is, what do we need to do in the law and in policy, and how do we need to approach this so that we can protect ourselves? Nicole. I have a lot of feelings about both of these things, um, but uh, I will say, to just before I transition to that, um, it all starts with transparency, because you can't do a blockchain solution to tracking these assets if there's no transparency within the data set of what's been scraped. Um, also, there's all the environmental impacts, et cetera, which we don't have time to go into, but I did want to mention. Um, but something very easy that everybody could do today is the University of Chicago, Dr. Ben Zhao, developed Glaze. Um, Glaze is a web app. It's also an app that you can download Mac and PC. And what you do is you I just threw a water bottle. Um, you upload your images in there. And it can be your family photos. It doesn't have to be your artwork, right? Because your family photos are in these data sets. Um, and it puts, it glazes it in a way that the when it's scraped, um, it doesn't actually contribute to the output. Actually, like it looks garbled when an AI a generator grabs it, so it can't put it back in. Um, they also just put, um, are creating Nightshade. Nightshade is actually a corrosive version of this technology, where if X amount of images that are Nightshade um, go into the data set, it actually starts to poison it. And, like the name suggests. Um, so, and it, the tipping point isn't that high, so definitely would love to host some nightshade all night parties. Um, but uh, get my grandma involved, get all the family photos. Um, so I think that's something very easy that you could do. So thankful that the University of Chicago has done that. Um, another thing that's really interesting is, um, in terms of legislature, is 
there's a very disproportionate amount of women and people of color that are copyright holders of their own art. It is very easy. The Copyright Office wants you to copyright your sketchbooks. They want you to copyright your art. It is affordable. You can do it online. You can literally like scan your artwork. So it's like this is something that um, we're doing. There's some asset. It's just it's very easy. And if you ask them to come to your class, if you're a teacher, like they love coming and giving presentations. So please, like copyright should be more accessible because that's the foundation of protecting yourself in the future. What are your thoughts on nonprofits using the um, the data set, Joel? Uh, which data set? Whatever data set we have. I mean, I'm thinking about the whole of the data set right now. Everything we put out there. Well, I think we are still so skeptical of these tools. Um, are not tools. I don't want to call them. I, I have to catch myself because I call a lot of technology tools, but I think AI is more complex than that. Um, we are still so skeptical that we don't really leverage them. Um, will we in the future? Of course, we will um, in ways that will have to be responsible that I think right now we are having a lot of conversations about how we can work with this. But it's definitely being informed by the concerns of the artists that we work with, um, their estates, uh, as well as um, our general counsel's office. Um, and really thinking about the responsibility we have in, as, as an institution. Um, and also, it's kind of an interesting situation where some of, you know, a lot of the artwork that, or artists that I engage with, um, they're, they're emerging or they're established, but, you know, they're not that deep into the art history books yet. And so you can't depend on uh, a data set by, um, you know, at Google's Palm to uh, using BARD or, or ChatGPT to, to write a, a label description because it will, it will come out so wrong it will be hilarious. So they're not there yet. I mean, the, the, the data sets and the LLMs aren't there yet. Will they get better? Of course. We are going to have to cross that bridge, but we're still pretty far away from it because I think we're, you know, the art world, our small art world is not high up on uh, the to-do list of probably open AI. Well, also because the algorithms are correlative. They look for patterns. They don't necessarily comprehend what it is that they're looking for. So they'll associate, for example, with bias, my understanding is that very often the reason that bias is so readily reproduced by these language algorithms is because it's correlating to what kind of language it's seen most frequently and human beings behave terribly on the internet. So things to consider, right, we're, we're already poisoning the data set. We don't need nightshade. Our terrible behavior and our awful ethics and our bad art are also poisoning the data set. <laughs> AI is the internet's revenge on us for being jerks on it. Maybe I always if we'd say, been... you have the children you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we should open it up to questions pretty soon? <laughs> We've got a great chat going, up on, going on online, too. Thank you, everybody, for your robust comments 
and critiques. Um, before we turn it over to the audience, does anybody have a comment about the AI-related headlines from the last week? Um, John, I think maybe you have something to say. Yeah, open AI, is yeah, that what we're all talking about? Yeah, How like Silicon Valley lost its mind because two board members stood up and said, hey, hold on, let's think about this. You know, I find it very disturbing what happened because we don't know why the board fired Sam Altman, but to say candid, like dishonesty and a lack of candor, that's a disturbing thing. And I think what people need to remember about the board members who left is they don't get paid for this. Like they made that decision for some very good reason and then they basically got flamed by all of Silicon Valley and all the powers of capital, all the forces of venture capital. They all united, Microsoft, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, to push these people out. And in their place we got Larry Summers, who <laughs> long ago said that women couldn't do STEM for some kind of genetic reason. Um, it's because we're not funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think we should all be paying attention to that. And I think that we should be very skeptical and we should be on guard and we should think, you know, I understand that part of it was that the employees of OpenAI who are very mission driven, who also have a lot to gain financially, wanted Sam and Greg and all those guys back. That's totally fine, but I really hope that as the board is reconstituted, it is very independent. I hope it represents a diverse spectrum of society. I hope it represents points of view outside of Silicon Valley, points of view from the arts, because if it truly takes its purpose as a nonprofit seriously, and wasn't just using a nonprofit guise to cover its for-profit activities, then it has a duty to the rest of us and the world to treat this as a public good, to treat themselves as a public utility and institution and represent people to have this conversation because we need to have this conversation. AI is here, it's not going away, but we're all affected by it and we need to figure out what kind of world we want. And I think we need to be part of that conversation. So I, I'm talking to Larry Summers right now, man, because he's the swing vote. You know, there's one member from the old board who's on who clearly had concerns, and then there's one member who feels like he's more aligned with the Silicon Valley moneyed class. Larry, this affects all of us. So when you guys put together your new nine people, that board better reflect the world at large and not just a tiny elite of Silicon Valley investors. Shall we hear from the people? Yeah, hi. So um, we are going to go to audience questions. I'll start with an online question, but for those of you here in person, if you'd like to ask a question, you can come right over here to where I am uh, and wait your turn. So our first question, uh, it seems under capitalism, AI is utilized for profit. How could AI be used under different conditions that don't prioritize profit? What's the potential there? In this system, it's hard to imagine. Um, but certainly there are, for example, universities that have been creating AI databases for quite a long time. Um, even the nonprofit structure itself is intended to provide some kind of an alternative to capitalism in the sense that nonprofits aren't supposed to make people wealthy. Instead, they're supposed to take whatever profit they generate, put it back into the mission. Um, thoughts? <laughs> I mean, a world where artists get transparency will go a long way towards helping us fight this. I just think the transparency of the training data, which is something that the EU AI Act was trying to get, which was 
mysteriously missing from the executive order that the White House issued, like how can you know unless you know what's in the data? You know, there's a, there's a saying in data science, junk in, junk out. Like we need to know what's being fed into these models we, before we can have any of these conversations. I'm also cautiously optimistic about the development of, like there's alternatives like Hugging Face, um, the Allen Institute. Um, there are defectors from OpenAI who have gone elsewhere and who have good intentions. Find these people. Um, and, you know, really they, you know, I don't wanna say they are our only hope, but, you know, these people, have an understanding of it, you know, they've been both behind the scenes and they have the technological literacy. Um, but I also think that there is promise, and I may, may be in a little, again, blue sky, but that content providers that at least are able to form consortiums um, are able to band together to create their own LLMs, um, their own large language models that and they can sell the quality of their content, of that, that it's been verified, that it has more uh, integrity than the sort of junk food models that you get with ChatGPT and Bard. So you can say, okay, this is, you know, if you wanna, you know, have digital health, this is, you know, this is the, not the slow food movement. I don't know what the analogy is I'm looking for, but there's one. Organic, you know. Organic, yeah, there, it could be like. Organic. You could you could you know push for that kind of um, uh, uh, quality of AI experience. So we have a lot of questions here. We're going to get through as many as we can in the next ten minutes. Hi, I'm David. I want to ask a blue sky question about artist rights, because this is an exponential technology. If we're going to change the rules, and the rules are always catching up, AI when it succeeds is creating literally an artificial intelligence, it's going to attain some sort of personhood, a motivation. Will future creative AIs deserve rights as creators in and of themselves once they evolve to actually being an entity? Ooh, great question. Um, let me just kick this off by saying that um, we already have non-human persons. They're called corporations. And any future personhood ascribed to non-human actors, whether it's an ecosystem or an artificial intelligence, are going to be based on the precedents that have already been set through the laws of corporate personhood. Yeah, I would, I would say two things about that. Um, first off, be wary, okay, so anything's possible. Math is incredible, computer science is incredible. So I don't hold out that it is impossible that you could create some form of new sentience or whatever if you to, if you transform this entire planet into a data center and fit it a whole bunch of um, information, I would say that thing will look nothing like what we are or in no way kind of replicate us. It'll be something crazy. And if that happens, then maybe the, the doomers who think we're all gonna die, maybe they're right. Um, before that though, I think it's very important not to anthropomorphize these models. Right now there is kind of, they can do statistical correlation really well, but we're not really sure, and there's disagreement amongst the, the godfathers of AI. There's a huge fight on Twitter right now between Jan LeCun and Jeff Hinton 
and uh, Yashua Bengio about whether or not these things are actually modeling the world. Are they reasoning or not? Are they a person? And these guys can't even agree about that. So I think until that debate is settled amongst the experts, we should resist the desire to anthropomorphize these and see them for what they are, which is a really fancy form of compression technology. But we don't have to have sentience in order for them to be granted personhood. Corporations aren't sentient in that sense. Well, I mean, corporate personhood is also problematic on many levels. I think we should remember self-driving cars. Like, I remember three years ago trying to tell my grandfather he needed to buy a Tesla because, you know, self-driving cars, right? And now, you know, they're in a lawsuit because they were falsifying their marketing data to sell them in the first place. So I think it's, there's the technology that what is quote-unquote being sold to us and where it actually is currently, and that is a very far gap. Also, the idea of what creativity is. Like, is it innovation? Is it originality? Like, what is creativity? And I think that's where, you know, the juxtaposition of, like, creatives and actually this idea of creativity really go head-to-head -head is, like, because this AI we have, it's not creative. We know it's, it's, it's creating an average. It's, like, a mean of all sums. So, you know, that's where, you know, I think that's a big crux for this kind of conversation is sentience and creativity. I have a question. My name is Artyom. I have a, a Google account, Google Photos, uh, Gmail, stuff like that. I've been paying for storage, taking pictures. I think I have over 80,000 pictures there. And I know a lot of pictures are getting deleted. Um, actually, uh, the phones that are coming out that consume more storage, the storage costing more. How is all that going to be affected? Like, I can't find some of the pictures I took, for example. And I shared them with Googles on some of their uh, maps and stuff like that. I've added places. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are AI applications that will allow you to search through your photos. I mean, th here's the other thing. Google changed its terms of service over the summer so that everything that you use through Google is fair game for their AI training. So that's, that's the other big thing about transparency. It's not just the arts. It's a human question. You know, like the rumor is when... Uh, when OpenAI was going to release uh, their multimodal version, you know, now that you now you can take a picture and the the chat GPT will tell you what's in the picture. One of the hitches was that it was inadvertently also a facial identification device. So I think issues of privacy here, which go beyond the arts, are something that everyone should be thinking about. Like anything that you put through Gmail or Google, they are training on. They're training all your YouTube videos. They're training AIs on. Like. Like, they just unilaterally decided our data was their property, and no one had a conversation about this. You know, it's funny. We spent so long worrying about 1984 and George Orwell's warning that there was going to be a totalitarian government that had a mass surveillance system. We didn't notice that it was being built and assembled in San Francisco, and it's up and running, and it's live now. I don't mean to sound like a crazy tinfoil hat person, but... It, that's kind of the case, you know? Well, this has been our city since 9-11. New York and London are the two most surveilled cities in the world in terms of just having a blanket grid of surveillance cameras that's now wired to artificial intelligence. There are too many cameras for any human beings to actually watch right now. And so they do use the AI. However, the AI doesn't always catch things because it's correlative and not reasoning. And so there are live streams on the internet that you can watch, so you can watch people's surveillance footage for fun and help them catch people who do crimes. So remember, too, that human beings need to monitor all activities of the AI, not only so that they don't do anything dangerous, but even just so that they don't sound really stupid. So if you put text into ChatGPT or a prompt and it starts to write something and then it pauses a little bit, that's a human being 
probably in Ethiopia or Nigeria or Sudan, who is reading what you're writing, or it's writing in real time, and correcting it so it doesn't say anything too violent or scary or weird. Um, well, okay. it's, yeah. Te technically, it's not in real time, but you raise a, a real point, which is that this technology, the database, it's not just the pre-training, it's also the fine-tuning, and that's done through Mechanical Turk, that's where you, they pay people like 25, five cents a, a, a prompt to, to fine tune it. So again, this goes back to the point of anthropomorph anthropomorphizing the AI. Like do not underestimate the amount of human labor that went into making ChatGPT sound like a human. Like an AI does not inherently sound like a human. It does not inherently speak like us. It is not a person, it is a database that has an incredible compression technology that allows it to recursively output statistical inferences on the data. It's doing real-time data analysis. And in its raw form, you would not recognize what it's doing. In order to make it palatable to human beings, they have to pay people very, very tiny wages. And some of these people also have to like sit through and look at horrific imagery to classify it, to say, you know what, don't put that toxic racist stuff that you will inadvertently output because you're the weighted sum average of all the toxic stuff on the internet. Don't put that out because that'll make us look bad. They're paying someone to do that. More content for to make art about. <laughs> uh, hi, Ricardo Handy. Quick question. Um, I don't know if you guys are all familiar with the Andy Warhol case that went to Supreme Court. And I'm just curious how that impacts, how you believe that impacts this uh, conversation. And also just like, it feels like that's ultimately where this has to go eventually to really be decided. Are you referring to the Condé Nast case? Of the yeah, image? the photo. Yeah, right, the print right. photo. So my understanding of that case, this is my personal opinion, and I have to say that I surprised myself by disagreeing with the progressive justices on this one and actually siding with some of the conservative justices on this one, which is that the problem here is that Condé Nast made a clear licensing arrangement for one image of Prince from a photographer that they licensed for Warhol to use, and then they went and used additional images made by Warhol, but they didn't renegotiate the terms of the original licensing contract. And basically, the art world has been called into service in defense of the corporation, Condé Nast, to say, no, no, this is artist's fair use, when in fact, it's a pretty clear-cut example, in my view, of Condé Nast trying to hide behind an artist in fair use to not pay a fee to an artist that they legally had a contract to pay. So it is, in some ways, it's exactly what we're talking about, but I don't think it influences it so much as it points out the exact problem, which is that corporations are trying to use fair use, which is specifically for educational, nonprofit, public benefit purposes, that you can violate the terms of copyright because it's for a non-remunerative public benefit, and instead they're stealing stuff and selling it and saying, oh no, it's fair use. Yeah, I mean, I, it speaks exactly to this. And like in Hollywood, you know, one of the many jobs I had before I finally got my Guild Health Insurance, which is the greatest thing since sliced bread, um, was I did music licensing for film and television. Uh, I was an assistant. And there's a reason like not every TV show you have has like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody from Queen in it because everyone loves that song and there are a million ways you could use that. There's a licensing regime where like the producers of the film and the television have to go back to the original artists, the writers of the song, or the corporations who hold the copyright, and they have to negotiate a fee that then gets paid to the estate. And it's a really complicated, laborious process. Actually, it would be a great process that AI could help with, but what it does is, is it ensures that the artists who created the underlying material are remunerated for their work. 
and it's possible. We do it in film all the time. The fact that OpenAI and uh, Microsoft and Google and Meta didn't even attempt to do it to me is pretty damning. And I do think that this will go to the Supreme Court. I think it will be argued there. Um, I think Warhol is very relevant. The, the Copyright Office actually cites it in their public comment questions, because they're clearly aware of this. And that's another thing people can do, by the way. The Copyright Office has an AI initiative. They want to know what artists and people and anyone thinks about the use of AI in the arts. So whether you think it's the greatest thing in the world, or you think it's something that we need, or you're terrified of, or just you know something that we should think about and regulate, you can still comment. You can post replies to them up until December 6th, I believe. And, and you, and you should get probably the link do that. for that out there. Aaron Monding did chat. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the you know, all, all praise to the Copyright Office, it sounds like they're actually reading these comments. They got 10,000 comments. That's incredible. You know, and obviously, they're getting comments from Google and Meta and Facebook. You know, they've, they've hired ex-copyright counsels to lobby on their behalf to make sure that these rules are implemented in a way that's advantageous to them. But I do think it's a people question. I think it's like the general body public of the United States has a vested interest in how copyright is applied. So I would, I would totally go, and I'm personally going to go and comment uh, on the, you can, it's a reply uh, period. So you're replying to the comments that have been posted. I'm going to reply to OpenAIs and Facebooks and say, hey, there's a difference between the way a human learns and the way a machine learns. They are not the same thing. And I think it's a kind of disingenuous statement to make that is advantageous to you. So this is going to be the last question we have time for, but for everyone who still has questions, please stay for our reception, continue the conversation, and ask your questions to our panelists. Hello, thank you. Uh, my name is Carl. I used to work at Showtime in a writer's room for a few years, and my question is regarding uh, AI and creative writing. So um, in our scenario, uh, we have so much of our own data, you know, story notes, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to use ChatGPT to help us do creative writing. So um, I actually founded an AI startup called Room AI, and it, it allows you to upload your own data um, to be able to engage in the context and conversation. Um, however, um, my question to you today is, um, do you think there's a future for um, companies um, that are trying to be like creative tools, um, help writers, and, and maybe uh, we like to call ourselves like an ethical AI solution? So is there any future for uh, these types of tools in the creative writing? industry, thank you. Um, that's a hard question, because I'm assuming you guys are some something of a rapper. Do you have an API call to OpenAI or something like that? Oh, sorry, wrong way. Um, there should be. Uh, God bless you. Empower artists, make sure that they get money and compensation. But um, again, it goes back to these gigantic foundation models that, that power all this stuff. Most stuff that you see derives from OpenAI, some of it derives from Anthropic, some of it derives from Bard, though Google seems to have been kind of behind the, behind the times on this. Um, and they're all using these data sets that were assembled without consent, consent, compensation, or consultation, image or text. And until we fix that, until we get transparency into those decisions, uh, I think that's what we're all fighting for on the stage, right? That the ethical approach, like figuring out what that is. To me, an algorithm is neither good nor bad, right? It's, it's what is it being trained on, and it's, to me, at the end of the day, a morality issue, right? So if you are not tapping into any of those pre-existing things, if it's purely 
somehow like there's an artist a fine artist that takes a lot of photos of flowers right and that's all she's doing is just doing it off of her own photos that she's created like I think that's fine because that's her data set right she owns that but yeah I think it just really depends on how the your program is built parting thoughts Sarah again it goes back to like what is creative <laughs> It's, that's where, you know, I have a really hard time grasping that because, again, we're, we're talking about, you know, something that's a sample. Um, you know, where where is that imaginary coming from? Um, and, again, like, you know, is it really creative? Like, I would argue that. Like, is it or is it not? Like, what do you guys think? We're creative. And we can <laughs> yeah. use it to be creative. And I think that's the lesson here. AI is nothing without us, human beings. Human beings still call the shots. And let's keep it that way. Um, it's time for us to close. So I want to thank you all for this wonderful conversation. Thank you to Zocalo Public Square, Arts for LA, the ASU Narrative and Emerging Media Program, and LACMA for presenting tonight's conversation. Thank you to everyone in our audience for joining us tonight. We encourage you to please stick around to continue the conversation with one another at our post-event reception with some light bites and beverages. You'll be able to find a summary of our talk at ZocaloPublicSquare.org by tomorrow, plus interviews with all our panelists. And please subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcast, and social media for more great conversations. Special shout out to the very robust online chat today. Joel, Nicole, John, and Sarah, thank you again. Everyone, please give our guests another round of applause.